This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The new thinking is that founders really are the secret sauce mm-hmm. of yep. fast-growing technology companies. One of our questions, if we're sitting there talking to you know three founders, um, is if you guys figured out how you're going to divide up the company. Right. If their answer is, yeah, we're even Stephen, all you know, just three musketeers here. Yep. We're all going to share it equally. That's a warning sign. The center is the customer. They're the ones who are paying for everything. I just saw this as, oh my God, this is like my chance. Quarter of a million dollars. It was almost surreal. You can't just cut out one person in the supply chain in order to solve the problem. Those are the kind of people you want. You respect them, their integrity, their intelligence, their ability, their can-do attitude, hard work. Welcome to the Fall 2015 UC, UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. Great to be back. You can follow me at Twitter. I'm John Greathouse, and it's super easy. It's just my name, John Greathouse. We have tonight Scott Detmer with us, and Scott is a founding partner of Gunderson Detmer. Founding partner is important because we're trying to focus on entrepreneurship in this lecture series. Um, how can a lawyer be entrepreneurial? You're about to find out. <laughs> Starting your own firm is extremely entrepreneurial. Scott's practice focuses on fast-paced tech companies, primarily in the um, or fast-growing companies, primarily in the tech and the life sciences sectors. He also he also represents a, a number of sophisticated investors, both venture capitalists as well as private equity investors, and they do all kinds of interesting transactions, which Scott has become well versed at over the years. He also has extensive experiences in IPOs, mergers and acquisitions, strategic alliances, strategic partnerships, um, and a number of uh, corporate uh, transactions of that nature. Scott has won a number of awards. I'll just uh, mention a few. He was listed as the top IT and venture lawyer by the Global Council 3000. Both the San Jose Magazine and San Francisco Magazine um, named Scott as one of the top security lawyers in Silicon Valley. And Scott was chosen as one of 12 Deal Makers of the Year by the American Lawyer. He received his JD from University of Southern California. We don't have a law school here, otherwise he would have come here. He graduated undergrad from the um, beach with a school, UC Santa Barbara. Go Gauchos. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and he was very active when he was a law student as well, working on the Computer Law Journal, as well as becoming a member of the Southern California Law Review. Fun facts about Scott, he lived on Sabado Tarde for most of his career here at UC Santa Barbara, except for that crazy summer after graduation when he lived on DP. <laughs> and if you guys want to ask him about that, I'm sure he won't tell you anything about it. Um, and I do look for well-rounded people that have been successful both personally um, as well as in business. Scott absolutely fits that bill. And I also look for people that give back to the community once they get to that point in their career where they can actually give something back. Scott has given both his time and his money. Um, of note, he is a board member of KQED, Northern California television and radio, um, public radio station. And I'm sure that involves a lot of work. It's very kind of him to come down here, spend his time, and share his insights with us. Let's give him a Santa Barbara welcome. 
Oh, it was a little Jimi Hendrix movie you pulled out there with the feedback. Yeah, that's what you, yeah, I, I, I like that. almost had my axe. <laughs> um, but I, I, I want to thank you for inviting me here. And I will tell you, just going back in a little historical perspective, when I was here, this certainly wasn't a campus or a, a UC facility, this building. It had only been burned down a few years yep. prior to uh, my start. So I was a little surprised when, when I found out that I'd actually be speaking in the former B of A building. Right. Um, so I feel pretty good about that. So UC Santa Barbara out Berkeley, Berkeley during the Vietnam War era. And <laughs> some of the students took it upon themselves to burn down the Bank of America building, yeah. which used to be here. In fact, they bombed it. So please don't do that. Um, but anyway, yes, this yeah. is the formal, yeah. former B of A building. Yeah, they built it. So when they finally decided that they'd rebuild it, they built it as a fortress, as you mm. can see, because mm. the other one was a little small little one. And, and uh, so I, this, is, this is exciting. So it's bomb-proof. A, yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, pretty much. We're safe, at least for the next couple that's of right. hours. That's right. Well, we do appreciate you coming down. Um, I think the students are interested in... Why you selected law? You know, I think we do have some potential. How many? How many folks are thinking about law might be in their future, some capacity? Okay. I, and I can tell you that understanding the law as an entrepreneur is immensely important. So even if you don't want to go to law school, learn as much business law, common law as you can. Um, what What led you down that path? Well, how did you end up selecting that as a career? Well, so I, I I'd always been well, starting you know, in high school, had a vague sense that. Maybe it was a fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even when I was here um, at UCSB, I worked for a few lawyers um, to just try it out and uh, really enjoyed it. And now that was a, that was a different style of practice. That was a kind of a smaller town, mm-hmm. um, small firm, uh, small practice um, sort of experience. But I liked it and, uh, and then you know, headed off to, uh, to law school and at the same time, there was this little voice that, that kept kind of, uh, uh, chatting away in the background that talked about business. And uh, so coming out of law school, uh, I pursued what was then a little niche practice, mm-hmm. uh, which was emerging companies, technology and innovation, venture capital. And, uh, uh, and my sense was it would combine some of the elements of law that I was attracted to, and then also have this, these other flavors. And it was a wild, I guess, but ended up working out well for me. Um, and, uh, and then, as, as you mentioned, there was that point a little later on when the entrepreneurial bug bit a bit hard, and we had this crazy idea of launching something on our own. Right. And uh, that, came, that came a little later. So I'll ask you about that in a second, but... I- I wanted to note that you, your life plan was to mm. go to a big city, sort of, you know, big lights, fancy city, learn a little bit about law, and then come back to Santa Barbara. Yeah, that was the plan. And, and uh, I don't think there's a weekly any longer called the Santa Barbara News and Review. No. Um, and, uh, but for the first five years that I was practicing in San Francisco, I was subscribing to the Santa Barbara local paper. It was kind right. of the offbeat yep. weekly. Yep. And... Uh, uh, and that was my life plan. I was coming back. I was going to get that big firm experience, big city experience, and come back to, to beautiful Santa Barbara. And I don't have to tell anyone here why, because um, right. it's what a wonderful place. Um, and, uh, uh, but then, you know, things happen. Right. Um, and uh, uh, and I, was, I was actually mentioning this a little earlier, that uh, the, 
around my fourth or fifth year of practice, uh, a headhunter called me up who said, you know, there's a firm in Santa Barbara that, that would be interested in you. Mm. You've got some background that would be relevant. And it was one of those occasions where you've had kind of on your shelf this life plan kind of sitting there unexamined. Yep. And at the time, the, my practice was exploding. I was you know, engaged with all these very cool companies. Silicon Valley was exploding. And then it also happened to be that I'd just gotten married, and, and there was no way that my wife was going to be moving down here. Um, her whole family lives in the Bay Area. Those all converged right. to ultimately take Santa Barbara, the return to Santa Barbara, a little bit off the shelf and maybe in the, now it's in the basement. Hey, maybe time to go down <laughs> to the basement and, and bring Pull it, it up. back up. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting how life works that way. I, um, I wanted all the students to kind of think about that story because oftentimes you take a temporary position in a city and it becomes permanent. Yep. And oftentimes it happens, not that in your case it didn't work, it worked out extremely well, but it can, it can kind of just happen, right? Yep. So you have to be very proactive. The fact that you kept that subscription for five years, you were really trying to cultivate whether that was going to work for you or not. But I think all too often people just sort of get in a mode of living and then it, and it creeps up on them. Yep. And it's not too late, so we'd yeah, like to have you back. Come on, man. Well, you know, my, now you can have a lot of fun. My wife is picking me up after this, this event. Maybe you could chat with her. Could, <laughs> yeah. Hey, just come down and visit. Yeah. <laughs> There's a very nice dinner if you can convince her. <laughs> All right. I, I am pretty good at sales, so I like commissions. Um, so if you had a chance to come back, if you, knowing what you know now, and you were sitting in this audience, most of these folks are seniors. They're going to be graduating either you know, next quarter or in the spring. Um, so they're kind of on their last, you know, they're in their seventh year. Okay, so right. That's right. Kidding. Um, but they're seniors. Yeah. So if you could come back, what would you do differently in your senior year knowing what you know now? Don't leave. Ah. <laughs> Don't leave town. Got that. That's right. Uh, uh, I, my, so my, uh, my senior year was a great year. So um, uh, if, if pressed, I'm not sure that I would have changed a whole lot to it. Uh, uh, but I would say, I mean, speaking from, from the vantage point of my career, my, my experience in the business community and from the, from the practice, um, that I think I might have actually taken a greater diversity of courses. Um, yep. And, uh, uh, and there's, it, it just keeps coming back in these strange ways where... Uh, you know, I'll refer back to a class that I that I had that I took on a lark that just ended up being a great class, mm -hmm. and, and so um, I, my, I think I was you know I was just kind of going through the, my major, and yep. you know, it would have been nice to to spread out, and and uh, and so that would be an encouragement both for senior year but in general. Yep, I think it's great advice. I think the the really the hidden value of college is having a chance to explore different areas yep. of potential interest, whether you know you're interested or not. So I would encourage all of you guys, take that extra class that seems a little bit off-road, like maybe something you wouldn't normally consider. You might end up finding out that's your lifelong passion. Or you might find out you don't want to do that. That's just as valuable. Like yeah. really understanding, hey, that didn't work for me, and understanding why it didn't work for you, that's as, that's as valuable as knowing when something does work for you. So I like that advice. So take us back to your young lawyer, your, you know, things are going well, but it's a big difference between being a, a, a junior law, lawyer and actually starting your own firm. Like, what was the what what was the match that got struck and that caused you and your partners to do it? So, the kernels of the idea of starting the, the our own law firm really were around kind of that fifth year of, 
of practice. Um, they didn't actually germinate into a new firm for uh, a number of years after that. But there was a small group of us at the firm that I was practicing at. We started, we started brainstorming. Mm-hmm. You know, we could do something that would be different. Um, and, uh, um, and, but it never really... There was, there was one person who ultimately was, was one of our founding partners who was probably most resistant to it. And, and it, it never really took. Um, then I became a partner at that firm. The, uh, one of, one of the, the colleague that I, who I'm referring to ended up leaving and joining another firm. Um, I then joined that firm um, later as a partner, much bigger national, international firm. Um, and, and then I was there for five years. So this took quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and like so many things, when there's a significant move, usually there's a push and a pull. Um, the pull for us was this opportunity to do something a little different mm-hmm. and to have our own firm. Um, one of the occupational hazards of being a lawyer representing a bunch of emerging growth companies, representing entrepreneurs, is you tend to get the infection, right, the, right. the entrepreneurial uh, uh, bug starts to starts to bite, and uh, and so there really was we were very excited about this opportunity to do something uh, different. That might not have been enough, and you know when it, the kind of the stars have to line up, right? And uh, and so for us, um, there around that same time, um, the place that we were practicing at started to experience some challenges, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't. It wasn't as certain that we were going to spend a lifetime there. Right. So the combination of those came together, and we said, you know, I think we're going to do this. And the funny thing is, um, this is our, our 20th anniversary for the firm this year, and uh, um, and uh, the founders uh, uh, were all talking. And when we finally decided that we were going to launch the firm, it was three weeks before Labor Day weekend of 1995. Ah, okay. And we said, we, we, you know, we have three weeks. We're going to pull this off. We'll do it after hours because um, we have our day jobs. We have to do it stealthy because we're launching a competitive law firm. Right. And, and so we basically, for three weeks, we just didn't sleep. And, we, you know, we lined up space and insurance and everything, you know, right. and, and all the rest. And we do it, you know, late at night at someone's house. And someone said, why did we say that it had to be Labor Day weekend. Why did we say it had to be three weeks? Everyone looked at each other and said, I have no idea. Yeah, we could have taken more time. That would have been a lot easier. <laughs> but for whatever reason, we, we had to pull it off in three weeks, and, and we ultimately did. And, uh, and who knows? Maybe if we hadn't, right. no, something I else, the stars, stars line up a different way. Time, yeah. as you know, your deal guy, time kills, yeah. kills right? So yeah. time, not a good thing. Yeah. Having less time is sometimes good. Yeah. I'll take this next the. First student's question in a second. I got one more follow-up for you, but just get the microphone and be ready. So when you went out, and I understand there was a long germination period, what was your differentiation? Uh, So when you say doing something different, like what did that mean to, was it three original partners? So so the the story is there were six of us um, who'd been been working on this. And um, when we launched that weekend, the drama around the weekend of that Labor Day weekend that we launched in, and we don't know why, um, why it was that Labor Day weekend. Uh, but uh, um, there were the six of us. We did it all stealthy. We 
didn't contact any clients in advance. We never, we didn't talk to any of our coworkers. Um, and uh, and just as an aside, there was a moment during the planning exercise, um, and we're sitting at someone's kitchen table, and you know we've spent time talking about all the administrative details and everything else. And, and we're talking about how we haven't talked to any clients. We don't know whether any of them are going to follow us. Right. And, and one of us said, have you ever walked past a new restaurant that's just opened up? Mm-hmm. It's empty. And they got the nice white tablecloths. And, and the wait staff are standing there kind of like this, just waiting. Right. And it's completely empty. And it just looks so darn painful. You want to walk past fast because yeah. it's just. Right. I said that could be us. We launched this thing, and we're. What happens? Everyone says, "Ah, oh, great idea, but this is not for us." Right. And so, I mean, there is. You know, we may not have experienced all the same terrors that other entrepreneur, entrepreneurs have when they do a spin-off or a startup. But at least we got some of them, and that sure. was that was an example where we looked at each other, and and the, and the person who said who brought up that metaphor, turned out it was me, got yelled at big time. I was like, knock it off, you're, you're killing us. Oh, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. So anyway, that was, that was, that was our... Um, no, but you raised a good point. Fear is a great motivator. Yeah. I mean, I think great entrepreneurs are, they don't want to fail. And fear yeah. of failure is not a bad thing. Like you hear that in pop culture, like sort of a really negative, hey, I'm afraid of failure. Like I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail on a personal level and I don't want my team to fail. And right. that's, a, that's a good emotion for an entrepreneur to put to use. Yeah. And I don't want to have a restaurant where everybody's just staring at each other. Well, and, and, and the other element to it, and I think it's part of the secret sauce of, of founders um, in general, uh, is that I mean, no one wants to fail um, in whatever role they're in. But if you're a founder and you own it, right. it matters a whole lot more. Hey, your name's on the firm. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, darn it. They don't yeah. have to say, who was in that firm again? <laughs> oh, I remember yeah. one guy. And, uh, but... You know, and it, and it may come up later in the conversation, but one of the new themes in investing and in venture capital um, and the, the new venture fund, relatively new venture fund that really has been out on the forefront of this is Andreessen Horowitz. Um, but kind of the new thinking is that founders really are the secret sauce mm-hmm. of yep. fast-growing technology companies because they are the ones who truly, they own it, they own the problems. They, they own all of it. They own the future, and they'll yep. go through the brick walls yep. to make something happen. Yep. And, and that's different because if you wind venture back um, some years prior, um, the pendulum was really swinging in a different direction, which was, well, you know, founders are great in their early years. They come up with some cool ideas, but yep. we'll bring the professionals in later. Right. And eh, maybe there's a role for them later or not. I'm not sure. And... And a number of venture funds and investors and thought leaders, um, you know, have, have really come around to say uh, those are the ones that, that make it all happen. Yeah. Well, Peter Levine was here last year. Yeah. Said, I'm an investor and I'm an operator. And I think what's, that mindset has changed, I think, primarily because so many operators have become venture capitalists. Yeah. So before you came up through business school, investment banking, then you became a venture capitalist. Right. Now it's like, hey, I was a founder. I yeah. know what this is all about. So we actually do not, my firm, we don't invest in someone if we don't think they have the ability to take it over the finish line. It doesn't mean we think they absolutely will in all cases, right. 
But if we sit there and say to ourselves, yeah, we're going to have to swap this person out after a few years, we don't want to invest. Yeah. For that very reason, we, just, we don't feel like those sort of people are disposable. They're the heart blood of the company. And that not, used to not be the mindset, as you well, say. It used and, to be. You know, and, and Peter Levine and, and his fund uh, really, you know, not all at the forefront of that thinking, what they've done in an interesting way in creating their firm is they've created a bunch of infrastructure to support yeah. those founders. Right. It's like, we don't want to replace you. How do we make you more effective? Right. Um, and that, again, that's also different. Yeah, yeah, totally different mindset. Let's take the first student's question. Hi. Um, so what advice do you have for startups um, to do, like a problem that you see when you're doing mergers and acquisitions, like a problem that is obvious to you that you see time and time again that startups continually do that make maybe the, the deal fall through? Well, so yeah, I definitely have a thought on that, and it's going to be less the the lawyers or or uh, or investment bankers' um, um, response. It may be something you glean from uh, I don't know psychology class or or, uh, or something else. It's this diversity of classes that I was talking mm-hmm. about earlier. Um, uh, mergers and acquisitions, sale of the company of a company, is too often looked at as a financial transaction. I'm like, okay, well, I'd like to sell it for more, so that's a good thing. Um, and they're all, there's, you know, a hundred technical issues and how it gets structured and how everyone gets paid and how long they have to stay, and all of those things, a bunch of technical issues. But at the end of the day, most M&A transactions are more marriage than they are financial transactions. Like, well, why is, why is the acquirer paying good money for you? Well, because they, they think that you're going to be able to create something much bigger together. It's not just a financial transaction for them. And, and so uh, we'll often coach founders and the management team to not forget. This isn't like getting a mortgage or getting a car loan that's very low relationship. It's a very, very high relationship. And, you know, and, and this is where all the marriage metaphors come out. And we'll say, don't forget, you, know, you talk about the beautiful children that you're going to have together. Um, and that, that you, maybe that kind of implanted somehow. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, so, so that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a funny one, but I, I would say that that's one of the more significant things that we run into, that it's, people look at, oh, it's a zero-sum game, and how do I win? And, and if the acquirer isn't looking at it as, as a marriage, they may grind the, mm-hmm. the employees or the management team right. and say, well, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to try to get the best possible terms out of you um, and pay you as little as possible. And you know, at the end of the day, what's a company? Okay? What's a young company that gets acquired? It's the people. Right. Now, okay, there is some technology. There's a product. There's some patents. There's some commercial relationships. But what's, what's the key value? It's the people. And so when we're on the buy side, we'll say, don't forget, you're, this is a relationship that you're putting in place. And uh, you, 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 you want this team to be really excited about joining your company. And so we'll also say, once the deal closes, don't forget to keep investing in the relationship. And now I'm sounding kind of new age and like a marital a marriage counselor. But you know, once you get married, you got to keep investing in the relationship. 
So I didn't really do your firm service, um, it, or, or it's it's really a significantly sized firm. There's a lot of small firms. There's nothing wrong with small law firms. Five, six, seven lawyers. You have over sixty lawyers, which is you start to get a lot of hierarchy, a lot of structure, a lot of management. It's not it's not like having five different partners. Well, so yeah, we have, and, and it's actually probably uh, more of a management challenge uh, in that we've got. Uh, 60 partners, so that's actually the owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. then uh, firm-wide, we have over 200 lawyers. And uh, uh, so we've been, we, we, we picked a great, we were very fortunate when we launched the firm that we, back in, in 95, that was a time when technology was really on the, yep. on the upswing. Um, and so it really, it gave us some time to develop the foundation and, and uh, um, but yeah, we've we've had our own Silicon Valley story um, and experience, and you know now we're in Boston, and New York, Southern California, San Diego, Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Beijing, and just opened an office in the Midwest in Ann Arbor. Oh, okay. And all doing the same thing, it's yep. representing entrepreneurs, their companies, right. supporting innovation, and, and the investment community that supports it. Right. So you certainly had a tailwind, but there was a lot of other lawyers that could have taken advantage of that same tailwind, and they didn't. So I think people look back and say, well, that person was lucky. It's like, well, I like luck, right? You know, opportunity meets, you know, readiness, and you certainly were were ready. So some some of the folks out here, they hear a lot about tech startups, software, you know, the social network movie, and it's all about, you know, this technology. But I I don't think that we expose the students enough to service businesses. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. a, a very legitimate, great a startup in and of its in its own right. Do you have any specific advice for someone that might be trying to trying to decide if a services startup is right for them or or a traditional tech startup? Yeah, and 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 at least historically, um, if you put it through the lens of the of the investment community and you know, venture capitalists, at least historically, the venture funds would say not interested in service right, businesses. Right. They don't lifestyle scale quickly. Business. Yeah. Well, it could be a lifestyle business, or even if you're trying to grow fast. It doesn't scale fast. Right. It's hard to, right. to grow it because you're heavily dependent on a bunch of recruiting people to, to grow it. Yep. And, and I, I will say, that from our own experience, that's true. It is hard to, to, uh, um, to scale a, 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 a service business. Um, but, uh, but I do think some of that, that thinking has changed. It may have swung even too far in the other direction within the tech community and, and uh, the emerging growth World, because I, my own my own hunch is that we now have too many tech tech companies or tech enabled companies that are in the delivery business, right, right, and right. and you know we, we we joke about you know what's the next delivery you know it's ah Uber know, for yeah, it's, a, it's an app for margaritas right, right. you know because everyone sometimes I'm ready has for one right now so, yeah so Where's actually okay so okay that's a good idea so the the margarita app okay so that's a good idea. <laughs> It was a bad example, but but anyway. So right. so I do think the pendulum has, has swung a bit, where you know investment community is supporting all sorts of service yeah. dependent um, businesses, um, and uh, but I would, if, from our own experience, I will say among the challenges of a, of a service business is that service businesses have a very difficult time scaling or dealing with peaks and valleys, um, because what you're you're heavily dependent on people. Right. Yep. And so for us, at just, just as an example, when um, you know, the 99 and 2000 hit, uh, 
that it just was exploding with activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was startups and M&A and IPOs and corporate partnering transactions. And it just, it, there was this just uh, a spasm of activity. And if you're, in, if you're a service business, that's, it's hard to meet that. Yep. Um, and then similarly, if there's a fall off in activity, 2001, 2002, now what? Um, and if you've scaled to that peak, mm-hmm. now you have some very painful decisions to make because now you've got you've over-resourced right. the opportunity. Um, and so, uh, you know, service business is, is a is a tough business, and uh, um, and and we've seen it, you know, in within our world, the legal community, as well as some other kind of more traditional service businesses, accounting mm-hmm. and. and uh, Management consulting, and um, but also in in some of the the people oriented or service businesses that are tech enabled. Yep. Well, and I think you also have to have a very I mean, it's almost stating the obvious, but I think it's worth stating it. Service mentality. Oh, you can yeah. Be a tech, sorry. You know, yeah. you can be a tech entrepreneur and just sit in your in your office, but if you're if you're really putting yourself out there as a service provider, you're at your client's beck and call. Yeah. So, and, and I'll tell a story on that. Um, uh, because we've grown the organization. Um, fairly quickly over the year, over these years, um, you know, recruiting has been a, an important part of our of our activity. And for a number of years, one of our partners was was managing it and doing a very good job, and uh, um, and had a had a, a very nice kind of hit record um, um, or track record on some of the folks he was bringing in. And, and uh, I sat down with them. And I said, tell me, I cannot, what filter are you using? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you know, there are a number of different factors, but the thing that probably matters most to me was, you know, do they have any experience as a waiter or a waitress? I said, wait, wait, wait. Because I thought you'd say, well, I, I was, you know, I'm mostly interested in tech undergraduate degrees or I'm uh, yeah I, I really you know what grade did they get in <laughs> right, what right, econ right. or you know something like that and now now because if you've waited tables you've had to manage lots of different things mm-hmm. you have to multitask and your 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 economics are tied to how well you yep. Juggle all those balls With and keep people on your face. and keep people happy. Right. And and so it was one of those. I went home and went. Uh, uh, I figured out what the secret sauce was for him, and <laughs> you won't believe it. But anyway, so don't tell anyone else. It's his special secret. And so this audience and anyone on tape is sworn to secrecy. But that's the trick. Wow. I yeah. Like it. Look for yeah waiters or waitresses. So you've demonstrated that you are an entrepreneur. Have you ever almost? Joined one of your companies, or have you had some offers that just drove you crazy because you knew they were going to be super successful, but you decided, nope, I'm not going in-house? Um, so, so just to be clear, lawyers can go in-house with the company and become that company's lawyer versus being lawyers for many different clients. Yeah, in a, in a firm. Uh, so yes, um, and it, and it uh, struck around the fourth or fifth year of practice. Um, and it's, it's a, for those of you who end up in, in a law firm environment, it probably also applies in some other firm settings. Um, that's a dangerous spot, at least vis-a-vis deciding whether you're going to stay put or, or move. Because at least in my own experience, and I think it's repeated with others, is that you've been doing it long enough so that 
the novelty is worn off. Mm -hmm. And but so the novelty's worn off, but you haven't reached a level of experience where you're kind of practicing and advising at a higher level. So now you're just doing kind of more routine things. And you haven't taken that next step. Right. So um, I think there are... Is that at like a principal level, or where is that typically? Yeah, and so in, in the typical law firm environment, there aren't... You know, management, the the uh, management consultants and the investment banks have gotten very creative, creative in creating lots of different levels right, so that they can right. give people increases. Right, right, right. Law firms are just not creative enough. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and so law firms pretty much have... Two flavors. Associate, Associate and partner. Partner. That's where you're at. And, you know, when we look at each other, we go, why, why don't we come up with something smarter? Right, right. Um, but uh, but anyway. director. Yeah. And, 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 uh, but in general, um, that's the, that's the, uh, the typical uh, gradations. Um, and so, yes, I was toiling away as an associate mm-hmm. in kind of my fourth or fifth year. And, um, and I, I looked at, at uh, an opportunity to go join a company, an interesting, fast-growing company, uh, as their in-house counsel or general counsel. And, uh, and it was funny. It was another one of those where it gave me another vantage point because um, I came back, and it was right around that time that my own practice was starting to click in some nice ways. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, there were you know, lots of ways that I could have weighed it, but at the end of the day, I said, I like the idea of being able to work with lots of different companies yep. instead of just one. Yep. I also like the idea of not having a boss. Because even, even it, as an associate, in my fourth or fifth year of practice, I didn't really have a boss. I had, there were a bunch of partners who mm-hmm. would give me assignments. But pretty much by that, and this is one of the nice things about a emerging company practice, you get a lot of experience. The relationship ends up being you and the client, right. less you and some partner who's managing you. Um, and so that may tie into you know, this interest in doing something on our own. It was, it, I liked the idea of being able to have our own practice or my own practice and not have a boss and have lots of right. diversity to right. it. Right, right. Well, it sounds like you were self-aware enough at that point in your career yeah, I got to lucky. know what you really... Well, <laughs> right. but it's a lot of people never yeah. get to that point. Where yeah. They never quite really know what's going to make yeah. them happy, and so then they're often not happy. We'll take the next student question. Uh, hi. Um, besides from giving advice and, off, and representing companies, um, how else would you say your firm is differentiated and, like, in its own niche? Yeah, so... Um, we did a few things that were a little different when we, when we launched. Um, and the, the law firm model for decades had been, for bigger law firms, had been kind of a department store model of, law, of, of practice, where in general, if you're representing medium size or big companies, you'd try to capture all their business. And so not only would you cover their corporate stuff and M&A and financings, and, but also estate planning and environmental and, and basically a kind of a broad-based, full-service offering. And that's been the mo- that ha- had been and still is the model for, for, um, for most law firms. And when we launched ours, we did something that was fairly unusual, and we said, nah, we're just going to draw a page from Silicon Valley. And so the Silicon Valley technology story 
is that you stay focused in those areas where you think you're at the cutting edge. You're the very best. And you outsource the rest. And so if, you know, very often when you know, a team comes together and let's say, you know, what, what's your, you know, if you're developing a hardware product, it's a, let's say it's a, you know, it's a Fitbit competitor. Very often the questions that will come from venture capitalists will be, yeah, but that involves a lot of different things. Are you going to do it all yourself? Or are you, I mean, are you good at software or are you good at hardware? And uh, because you're not going to be good at everything. And often the right, right answer is, yeah, we're, we're all software engineers. That's where the differentiation is, and we can outsource manufacturing to you know, one of the outsourced manufacturing shops. Um, and so maybe drawing a little bit of that best-of-breed um, concept from Silicon Valley, we said we're only going to stay focused in those, those areas that we think we're at the cutting edge, and we'll outsource all the rest, and, and it's funny because, you know, our friends at other firms would go, wait, why, why would you do that? Why would you? So, for example, we don't do any litigation. I mean, our entire firm, basically no litigation. We'll get involved in some border skirmishes, but that's pretty much it. Any heavy-duty heavy litigation, we outsource. Um, and, you know, estate planning and immigration and um, regulatory. You know, our conclusion on regulatory was that expertise is in Washington, D.C. Right. Why try to construct it here and do a just a so-so job? So that was it. Was it was there were really only two firms within the the kind of tech venture community that were doing this focused practice. Us and one others, one other firm, and then all the rest were really following this full service model. And it was funny because we uh, um, we really weren't sure whether this would work and whether it would scale. Luckily, you know, the client community, because it was tech companies that were following very much the same right, model, right. they said, I get it. That's, that's our model. Yep. I haven't seen it in a law firm, but okay, well, let's, let's try this. Yep. And then, you know, for those clients that, that need some of these other areas, we'll often, you know, find those resources and really manage them. Um, but um, we haven't tried to build all of it under one single roof, and we won't build something that we think isn't the cutting edge. But that's different. Yep. And so you probably are listening to it saying, that's not very different, that's not very creative. But you have to consider it's within the field of law. And so there's not a lot of creativity and imagination and innovation within the field of law. So we thought we were pretty radical. But I think most everyone else would look at it and go, eh, okay, well, it's pretty good. But, <laughs> but anyway, it, no, but, but it's it worked a, well for us. I think it's a great message for entrepreneurs. It's be known for something, be known for something you do really, really well. It doesn't pay to be known for things you do mediocre. That's going to confuse the message. Yeah. Like, be known for what you do extremely well. So you, you have to sit down. You've sat down over the years with a lot of entrepreneurs that have gone on to be successful. Um, it may not be apparent to all of, all of you, but lawyers have to vet their clients just like clients vet their lawyers, right? So you know, Scott's not looking for a transaction. Scott's looking for a long-term relationship, hopefully with someone whose company's going to grow, become robust, and have a nice exit, IPO, you know, multi-hundred million dollar exit, whatever it is. And you just want to establish a long-term relationship. So you're sitting there essentially interviewing them covertly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What are some things that you've seen over time or characteristics where you just walked out and said, that person's going to be successful, and or things where you said, no way, no how, I don't think that person's going to make it? Um, and we, we, we actually had a 
conversation on this um, in the program before the, e- the EATS um, uh, program. And, uh, um, and I, I do think there's, over time, there is some pattern recognition. Yep. Um, and you know, we do, at our shop, joke about if we really knew how to do that filtering very well. You'd be investors. We'd, we'd abandon but you the are investors, <laughs> though, in the sense that you're investing your focus, your resources. Well, and I'll take it one step further. We actually are investing in companies. Right. Um, right. We have a small little fund and that's worked very well for us over the years. And, and uh, um, But certainly we're investing our time. And it's also the case, we truly are investing, make, taking risk, because sure. for a lot of young companies, we'll say, look at it, and you don't have to pay us for a while. Right. We'll carry you. Yep. We'd rather have you take your limited dollars and focus that on engineering or marketing or you know, or product development. Don't, don't spend it on lawyers. Um, maybe we're being a little disparaging about what value we contribute, but we're, we'd rather... But that's another example of investing. You're investing, because yeah. in, you wouldn't do that if you didn't think that person... So, yeah, so we and, are... And, but that is a great lesson for you guys. If your service provider isn't willing to invest in some material way, such as lower fees or you know, additional hours, then they yeah. really don't believe in your vision. Yeah. You want people on your team that believe in your vision. Um, and so, yeah, so we, 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 we try to put it through a filter, um, and... Um, and we'll, but the, the interesting thing is, is it's, it's so hard to reduce to an equation. Right. And I, I do think we follow some of the same metrics or, or um, um, you know, f- formulas that the, that the institutional investors follow. And so we're very interested in the team. Yep. What sort of experience does the team have? You know, how much passion do they have around the idea? Um, if it's a, if it's, if there's more than one founder and you have two or three founders, well, watch carefully. What's what's the interaction? The dynamic, yeah. What's the dynamic? Yeah. Um, so a number of these students are going to go out and start companies. Um, hopefully, my advice is always get a great startup lawyer early, especially if it's somebody who doesn't start charging you a ton of dough mm-hmm. that really helps you. But let's assume that they don't get their lawyer early enough, what are the mistakes that you want them to avoid? What are the mistakes that you see young entrepreneurs make from a legal standpoint? Yeah, and, and there, are, there are a lot of different ways that you can have foot faults and other mistakes. Most of, most of them can be corrected. Um, there are a handful, though, that we, we really focus on early on, and, and so and just to encourage all of you to stay focused on this, um, the... The first is be, you, you, you want to be very careful to avoid what I might call the Winklevoss twins, um, Facebook, who's in the tent and who isn't yes. problem. And, and this is, it's, a, it's an easy one to fall into because the early days of a startup are pretty amorphous. And very often, founders will try to get some validation on an idea, and they'll talk to people, people they trust, people they know, some people they don't really know or trust. And and then they'll they'll do some more brainstorming. They might reach out to someone who says, hey, I'll help you out for a while. Yep. And, And the thing that can just kneecap a company in the early days or be a real problem later on are these folks that kind of live around the periphery of a startup, yep. and you don't have a deal with them. 
you you want to want to worry about those kind of hangers on. Yeah. Um, but like I say, some of it is is the setting where someone says, "Hey, you told me you'd give me half of your company." Right. And then you know then they'll, then the founders will tell us, "No, I never said that." And I said, "Well, what sort of relationship did you have with them?" Now, if they say, "I had none," I mean, this this is pure imagination. Great. Then we yeah. have we really have something to work with. If they say, "No, actually, we spent two or three months working on it," and I you know I think the person was working pretty much full time on it. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, so we, but but we never told them that. Right, right. Uh, that's going to be harder to work with. Um, so be real careful. And, and uh, you know, if, if it's a if it's a you know two or three founders who have known each other for ten years um, and trust each other, that's fine. You don't have to formalize anything. But if it's if you're working with folks who you don't have that trusting relationship with. At that point, I think you do want to think about having a, some sort of piece of paper or at least some sort of clear understanding as to what the relationship is. Um, because if you haven't defined it, they'll define, they might define it for you. In their you. favor. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so that, that's, that's one. And then related to it is this whole issue of ownership of IP. Mm-hmm. And in, again, in the early days, people are, are trading ideas and... Um, and again, bouncing ideas off of others who they don't know so well, and hiring people to do work for them. And and you know that's one of the things about a startup economy. It's virtual. Um, you don't have to have a bunch of employees. Um, but if you are reaching out to anyone outside your trusted circle who's going to actually start developing things for you, you know, oh, we're, they're going to help develop our prototype. Not sure if they're going to stay with the company or not. Um, but they're going to do that. Right. Hey, you got to have it. You, you need to Work have a piece hire. of paper, yeah, that yep. says we own whatever you're developing. We own. Yep. And uh, those are the ones that are hard to fix um, because it, it it happens. Probably doesn't happen every week, but it happens every month that we sit down with a group of founders that have something very interesting, and they say, "Yeah, so and so helped develop some of our code um, and some key parts of our code." But we had a falling out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we said, well, did they assign that technology to the company? Right. I go, no, they never got around to that. Could you get them to sign it? Oh, no, no. They, they hate us. Right. Uh, yeah, so. right. and, and we've had companies that just don't move forward as a result of it. I mean, not only is it an issue for the founders, can you say, this may not work. But it also has to satisfy the investors. Yeah. Investors are going to demand it. They're going to say, forget it. Right. Yeah. So one thing I would add there, I think your, your first point about the founders is, is spot on. Like document who owns what. And I, the advice I always give is make sure all the founders are vesting. Yes. Because the last yeah. thing you want to have happen is somebody signs that and goes, oh, now I own a third of the company. Right. I quit. Yeah. Like, what? So everybody has to earn their equity over time. I'll flag one other. Um, we talked about uh, in, a, in this prior session, uh, but uh, uh, there's a temptation on the part of founders, especially first-time founders, if you have you know, two or more founders, um, to take the shortcut in deciding how you divvy up the company. And, uh, uh, and when we sit down, this goes back to your question about you know, how do we make some decisions on who we take on, um, but one of our questions, if we're sitting there talking to you know, three founders, um, is if you guys figured out how you're going to divide up the company. Right. If their answer is, 
yeah, we're even Stephen, all you know, just three musketeers here. Yep. We're all going to share it equally. That's a warning sign. Maybe the right answer, but then our follow-up will be, okay, well, how did you get to that? And it'll and and it's when we're coaching entrepreneurs, we'll say, you better have a thoughtful answer on that, because if you get it wrong. It's going to be a problem for the company later on. Maybe two of the three of you will be upset right. three years from now or two years from now that the two of you really provided the big value to this company and the other person didn't. Mm -hmm. So you want to think about that. The other is, and this is the subtlety, is that um, savvy investors ask that same question. And one of the reasons is because if, it, if it's wrong, to fix it is expensive later. Mm -hmm. But the, the subtlety is they also look at it, they also raise it to get a better understanding of those founders. The dynamic, yeah. And, and there aren't a lot of tough issues, especially intra-founder issues mm -hmm. in those early days, but it's a good way to figure out whether these folks know how to resolve difficult issues between them. Yep. And if they go, well, we started out, we were thinking maybe even Stephen, but no, you know, Founder, the number one founder has a ton more experience than the rest of us, and you know in the market that person should get would normally get a lot more. And then we thought about this, and, and here are some of the factors that we brought to bear. Right. If they have a thoughtful answer, um, then that's that's reassuring, not only that they got it right, but they knew how to have a tough conversation. Yep. Yep. Good point. We'll take the next student's question. Okay, hi. Hi. Is this on? Oh, okay. Um, so I thought it was interesting how your firm's kind of unique business approach seems to sort of almost mirror sometimes, like the startup approach and how you, from your inception to your rapid growth, kind of quickly scaled up. Do you have any um, unique strategies or something that you can apply to startups in terms of scale up and like changing their business plan from a small to a larger company? Um, yeah, that's a good, good question. I haven't thought about it in terms of our own growth and how that compares to some of the challenges that a, that a fast-growing technology uh, company has. And, uh, and I'm not sure how many of our learnings are, are directly applicable to the, uh, uh, to the startup. Uh, the, this is maybe going to be a little more amorphous. The, the thing that I think we, where we were again lucky, um, we were lucky in so many different ways, um, was in pulling together that initial core team. And when we launched, there were the six of us, but by the end of that, that Labor Day weekend, there were 20 of us. Mm. Um, 20 attorneys and then probably about 10 or 15 non-attorneys working with us. So we were already at about a headcount of about 45 uh, when we first started. But we were so fortunate that it was, a, it was a great, cohesive group, shared a lot of the same uh, goals and, and ambitions, but also had similar values and shared just a whole lot of the, kind of the same culture. And, uh, and that really, I, th I think, has been one of the most powerful pieces of our growth, that there's that glue that holds our organization, at least has, has helped us when we've hit the rough patches. And, you know, in this business and so many other businesses, there are cycles and there are rough patches. And, uh, and so 
especially organizations that are, I think it applies to all organizations, whether it's a product company or service business, um, there is, there, there's great value that I think comes out of having an understood culture and investing in that culture. Um, and, uh, uh, and what's interesting, and maybe I'm straying, is that um, one of the things we find is that some of the greatest proponents of our culture and, uh, are those who join us later. Um, who join, join us recently, mm-hmm. who have joined us recently, who say, hey, you're different, and there's a kind of a great, we, we like what you're doing, we like how you approach life, how you approach your organization, and how you support your people. And they end up kind of reinforcing those, those cultural attributes. And uh, um, so anyway, I'd say culture is a big part. That, that is a big competitive differentiation if you can if you can do it and that's hard because if you grow quickly um it puts a lot of pressure on the cultural piece well i think you're right if every organization that's growing has growth pain, pains it's always painful for someone at some point in, but if you have that culture of shared success like we're all in this together then the pains it's kind of like a family like we'll deal with pain together we're not going to get mad at each other because there's pain because that's part of the experience. Yeah, and, and, and an example of that is um, uh, it, it's because we care about the cultural piece and we think that's an important part of our, our business um, and also just the way we want to live our life. Right. It has introduced some friction on our, on our overall growth. And, in, and a great example of that is um, in our practice in China and we we've had a ter- we we've had a terrific practice in in China, um, and, and it really was an outgrowth of our very strong venture capital practice in the United States. And then what happened was the the U.S. venture funds, as China started to de- develop into a very strong tech market, started moving to China mm-hmm. and forming affiliated funds in China. Well, who did they use for that? Well, it was us. They knew us, so. We got involved there. And then over time, the managers of those funds in China spun off to start their own funds. Who did they come to? They came to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we were the beneficiary of kind of those, those relationships. And we needed to open an office in China. The person who headed that practice out of Silicon Valley would come back from visits in, in China and say, it happened again. Oh, really? So yeah, I was visiting in China. And I met another venture fund. They said, oh, you're doing a lot of work out here. Are your offices in Shanghai and Beijing? Mm. And you go, uh, have you heard of Redwood City, right. California? Right. And, uh, but, the, but the problem is if you care about these, these cultural pieces, you can't just go out onto the spot market and right. hire someone. Right. You can't grow by franchise. Um, and so we were slow to we looked we talked to a lot of people and we wanted to make sure we got someone who really understood our values fit within our culture um and uh and we ultimately did and it's been terrific to have, having that person and the team um that came with them um and it's worked worked very well for us um but uh, but it does cause some put some limiters on your right. on your expansion yeah that's always the tension in growing right is is not compromising your culture too much yep. 
trying to decide is this person going to fit, and ultimately, obviously, not compromising in the end is always yeah. best. But when you're under the gun to, to grow, it's, it's sometimes hard to do yeah. that. Well, I hope that all of the students can get a relationship with their lawyer like I had. So I had a guy, Larry, if you're out there. So I had a guy that became, I, I'm convinced he was a frustrated professor because he loved explaining the law to me. And I don't think he ever charged me for it. He just, we had a great relationship, right? But it's, I want you guys to look for that sort of a relationship with your lawyer because it benefits everybody in the process. And when I would say, why, Larry, why? I wanted to understand it. I didn't want to just call him two months later and go, okay, this happened again, what do we do? Like, I wanted to understand why are you giving me that advice because if I understand why, then I can probably deal with the issue when it arises or if a similar issue arises. So I always said look for that person. Um, and I also look for lawyers that didn't say no. They said, here's how we can do it and here are the risks. Like, if your lawyer is always telling you no, they're not a startup lawyer because a lot of stuff we want to do is just it's unusual, right? It's not... It's not rote. We're not a big corporation that's doing the same thing over and over again. So your lawyer needs to say to you, John, you know, that's okay. That's a little unusual, but here's how we could do it. Look for that. So my question to you, what questions should they be asking their lawyer when they're trying to figure out if they're that sort of an entrepreneurial startup-oriented lawyer? Well, so there's the starting point, which is you want to make sure that they have the expertise. And, and, uh, and you should be able to solve for that. And there's... In whatever category of business that you're in, there should be a good number of folks who really have kind of cutting-edge expertise, and, but you do want to start there and solve for that. Um, and, uh, and so you, you know, ask them about their level of experience in the industry and, and uh, how many other kind of relevant clients and transactions and experiences they have. That's just, that's just the starting point. Yeah. Um, I think you, you, you really want to look for that sort of relationship and chemistry that you're describing where there's that trusted relationship where this person really can be kind of your trusted go-to advisor. Yep. I'd go add another layer to it, which is how much excitement does that person have for what you're doing? Exactly. Um, for your industry, for you know, the, what innovation you're bringing to bear. And, and yet... You'd, you'd like to have someone who really is invested, at least figuratively. Emotionally. Uh, emotionally in, in what you're doing. Well, Scott, yeah. thank you so much for coming. This is oh, wonderful. You yeah. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.